Gospels out and turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. We are going to pick up here in our study of Joshua, and I am excited about this study. I have uh, looked forward to, to studying this book. It's a book that I honestly haven't studied in its entirety, I don't believe, uh, that I can recall and remember growing up. Uh, I remember in college we took a few classes. We uh, uh, looked, I think, generally at the critical introduction to this book in one of my Bible classes. Uh, so you're analyzing it more than you are really studying it. Uh, and there is a distinctive difference if you've ever taken a critical class uh, you know, looking at the authorship or the history, the time of the writer, who the author is, those kind of critical uh, things. Uh, you don't really get into the meat of the book necessarily besides maybe a general uh, overview. And so I've really been excited about looking at this book of Joshua because if you think about it, as we're kids and growing up, this is one of the books that, that we kind of look to as one of these heroes of faith, if you remember, right? Uh, Joshua is seen as, as one of these Bible characters that little children look to, and especially as you, you think of the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down, you know, it's one of those uh, characters that we see and we, we think of as being one of these wonderful Bible characters, and he is, in fact. Uh, but I think this book has a lot more uh, to offer us as Christians as we look at it. And I really want to look at it in a textual way. Uh, and some way, we're not going to be able to go verse by verse. But in this first lesson, actually, I'm going to attempt to go verse by verse just because of the nature of uh, chapter 1. As we go further, it's probably going to be more topical, some storylines, so to speak. Uh, Rahab, Jericho, those kind of storylines. We may not get into verse by verse uh, looking at the, the passages of Scripture, but may look more of an overview and look at those ideas and concepts presented there in those stories. Uh, but that's kind of one of the things great about the book of Joshua is it lends itself to so many different ways of us studying it, looking at it, and enjoying it. Because it's one of those books that you truly can get into and be, I think, encouraged by it. Uh, it is a book about battles and fighting, and so that appeals to a lot of us guys who like that kind of grit. Uh, you know, I, can't, I can remember Memorial Days and, and uh, Veterans Day holidays, those kind of days when we would spend it at home with my dad, and my dad would always like those war movies. And so I would get stuck enjoying some of the Dirty Dozen type movies. And, of course, those of you who've seen Dirty Dozen, it's one of the greatest, I think, comedies and one of the good movies that they've, they've got out there in the, in the history. And, and, of course, then some more of the raw and gritty battle movies, you know, just going into historical look uh, of things. I remember looking at some Civil War documentary type videos, and it really opened my eyes as to history as I was growing up. And Joshua's got some of those fun things, too. And so Joshua's a great book. What I want to do to look at the first, this lesson, too, jumping on the tail end of our introductory lesson, really want to dive into looking at Joshua having the courage to uh, replace a legend. To replace a legend. Uh, those of us who are, well, I'm relatively new to, to football. Uh, I'm more of a basketball fan than I was a football fan until I moved to Alabama. Uh, the story's told about a man, of course, who came to Alabama. He had a, a winning percentage of better than 900 as a, as a college football player. He became a head coach at his alma mater. He replaced the, the legend for whom he played. He took over the program that still was near the top, but it had many cracks uh, within it. His team won more than two-thirds of their games, but not the success that the locals had really expected. 
he switched offenses. He went away from the wishbone offense and, and that had helped to restore the, to grandeur the glory of the program that he assumed uh, control of. He, he made many changes, not all popular to the program. He was aloof at times. Some even argue that he may be arrogant and, and he displayed sometimes no great desire to endear himself to an entire state of fans who live and die with the university team. As I say that to you, of course, there's probably several names that come to mind uh, to you. We've got more probably modern ones that may apply, but the one that I'm talking about is Ray Perkins. And for those of you who are Alabama fans know, Ray Perkins was a man who knows what it means to walk in the steps of a legend. He replaced Bear Bryant at Alabama. Ray Perkins was, um, you know, one of only a handful of coaches who walked in the heavy shoes and followed a legend in college football citadels. In 1983, Ray Perkins began a four-year deployment, or odyssey, so to speak, at Alabama and replaced the the most hallowed coach of them all, Paul Bear Bryant. Uh, Perkins said, you know, I never claim to replace Coach Bryant. It just was a great honor to follow him. He returned to Alabama as a hero. He had been an All-American receiver, catching passes from three different All-American quarterbacks, Joe Namath in 1964, Steve Sloan in 1965, and Kenny Stabler in 1966. Alabama went 30-2-1. That's back when they could tie, evidently, uh, back in those days during his three years of coaching at Alabama, winning two national titles. He was received very, very well, one writer said. Uh, he was a great player at Alabama, and nobody ever played harder than Ray Perkins. And, and Perkins even had some coaching experience at Mississippi State and in the NFL with the New England Patriots. Uh, he, in 1979, had become head coach of the New York Giants, who in 1981 won their first playoff game in 18 years. Perkins was the first of Bryant-coached players to become an NFL coach. In his four years at Bama, Perkins' teams went 32-15 and and won. They won three bowl games. They went 2-2 against arch-rival Auburn, and they failed. But they failed to win the Southeastern Conference title and went 5-6 in 1984, Bama's first losing season since 1957, the year before Bryant was hired. Obviously, the fans at Alabama, uh, much like today, were accustomed to winning. Uh, the, the fans expected to win. They expected the coach to come in and to carry on those things that the legend Paul Bryant, Bear Bryant, had brought to the school. Ray Perkins found a hard, daunting task ahead of him. And, and in fact, after three years, he decided it was enough. And he left and bolted and went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a head-time NFL coaching job. Following a legend is not easy in any respect of the form of the word. You think of some of our political figures. There are some in this world who, who are, are held on such a pedestal that it's almost hard to live up to expectations sometimes. And as you think about Joshua in replacing the legend, you think about the legend, and it's hard to uh, miss the legend that was Moses. Moses, of course, was the man, the leader of Israel for years upon years. He was the one whose call began at what? A burning bush. There, as the Lord miraculously spoke to him there under the burning bush and told him to go into Egypt and to get his people and set them free and lead them to the promised land of which he had given them. The legend of Moses was phenomenal. And our man, 
our character, our study of Joshua follows in his footsteps. The great thing about following in the footsteps, though, of a man called by God is that it can be, honestly, assumed a lot easier. Ray Perkins may have had an uphill battle replacing Bear Bryant. I think, honestly, of course, we all know in this state, uh, and I I chose Alabama as a a specific analogy because we're so endeared to our hearts here in this state, it's tough. And in fact, even today, the standards of coaches today are still compared. Nick Saban will be compared to Bear Bryant until the day he retires. And probably even thereafter, his legacy will be. Because he's set up there as that pedestal of coaches. Coaches at Auburn, its, it's arch rival, are compared to Bear Bryant. I have I, I listened to news shows after news shows this week. Being an Auburn fan, of course, I am excited and pumped. Uh, I was cheering hard for Michigan State last night that they would win that game to give us a chance to go to the national championship. And, but in listening to all the sports shows, you hear the analysis, you hear those commentators, you hear them talking about comparing the coaches to the legend of all legends. Imagine how Joshua may have felt thinking one day I'm going to replace this man. If you think back, and last week we talked about it, back in Numbers, Moses actually made that decision to establish and set apart Joshua as being his heir apparent to the the leadership and to the ones who would lead Israel into the promised land. And as as, uh, you see the death of of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, what you see is the, the ominous ascension, so to speak, of leadership that Joshua had as Moses there lay dying... And then Joshua took up that scepter of leadership to lead Israel on into the promised land of which that they had known. And I think it's so wonderful to look at those passages. Look with me first, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 here. As you see what what happens at the beginning of this book, of course dovetailing it with the, the previous book of history being Deuteronomy, you see how they go together there with respect to it. But look at verse 1, it says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying. Joshua chapter 1, the, the book itself, begins with the passage of the changing of the guard, of the leadership of Israel. Now, I think what's interesting as you look in verse 1, of course, there's several allusions there made to Moses and to that legacy there. If you look, the phrasing there itself brought about after the death of Moses. And then if you want to put in, in circle or underline in your Bible, the, the servant of God speaks volumes about who Moses was. And in fact, that phrase is used really only to the patriarchal leaders of the Old Testament, if you look. Some of the prophets called men of God. Uh, But the servant of God is a phrase that is commonly used for those men who are closest to God. Those men who were specifically appointed or picked or chosen by God. Men like Abraham, who was a servant of God. Here Moses, of course denoted as being a servant of God. It reminds me really of the New Testament deacons uh, because that's really what diakonos, the the Greek word for deacons, means is is servant. It means servant. It, It means one specially called, one set apart for a duty or a task. And here we see the passage of Scripture in Joshua talking about this legend, this legend named Moses, talks about how Moses was specifically called, set apart, serving God. 
And that speaks volumes about who Moses was. Now, if you look back, of course, Moses and his legacy is tarnished by the fact he was not able to lead his, his people, the people of Israel, his nation, into the promised land. We know the reason was is because of disobedience. And I think that should speak volumes to our leaders even today. Uh, it's, it's possible to be a good leader but still mess up. And when you mess up, you're going to pay the consequence for messing up. So keep that in mind with respect to it. Just because Moses faltered, because Moses hit that rock when he shouldn't have hit the rock, he should have only spoken to the rock as the Lord commanded, that marred his life from there on out. And, of course, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 34, if you want to flip back a couple pages or maybe one page in your Bible, depending if you've got some study stuff at the beginning, you're going to see the demise, so to speak, of, of Moses and what I thought was interesting as I reviewed this, Moses really wasn't at an age or at a time of health in his life to die. Uh, and, God, and In fact, he just died because it was appointed that he would die before the people entered in the promised land. Look with me, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of the Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Nephtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea. Now, of course, here's an allusion to the ultimate uh, appointment of those lands that Moses would look out and see from Mount Nebo. He would see as far as the eye could see that land which was promised by God to the people of Israel. And, and those nations and those, those tribes of Israel would ultimately inherit those lands. And so it says there in verse 3, And the Negev and the, the plain and the, and the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, again, look at the phrasing, the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no man has known his burial place to this day. Although Moses, and I like this, verse 7, very interesting to look at this verse. And I don't want to totally dissect it too much. We don't have the time uh, to get into a, a big debate, but I find it interesting to look at verse 7. It says, Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Wow. Wayne, he was still in the prime of life. He was still in the prime of life, wasn't he? Uh, unlike, I can't imagine being 120 years old and my eyes not being dim and still having the vigor that I would have had as a youth. I, I'm 35, and I, I sometimes wake up and wonder if i got any vigor left. 120. Moses was still there, prime of his life, ready to leave, ready to do what he could, but he did no more. Why? The Lord said. It said, he died, he died, verse 5, according to the word of the Lord. You know, it's kind of cool to leave out on a high note. I really respect sports uh, players who reach almost the pinnacle of their career. They, they go out on top, they say, so to speak. And they, they win a World Series, or they win a national championship, or, or they, they do this award, or they have this award, or they had just a great statistical year, and they decide, you know what, it's not going to get any better than this. I'm done. I'm out. Now, they do that on their own volition, usually. <laughs> their own choosing. In this case... Moses, at the pinnacle of his career, the pinnacle of his life, so to speak, was there on Mount Nebo when he looked out among the plains and among the valleys there of the promised land, looking and seeing all those things that God said, this is yours. 
I have promised Abraham, I promised Isaac, I promised Jacob. And guess what? It's yours for the taking now. But you're not going. You're not going. The legacy of the legend of Moses ended on Mount Nebo. Now, technically, his legacy lives on today. That's what we learn from. That's what we see. But the legend that Joshua replaced died on Mount Nebo according to the word of the Lord. At the point whenever he was able to see the fulfillment of those things which God had promised, that God had told him, that God had sworn would occur one day, Moses was able to see those things occur. I think it's wonderful and it speaks volumes about the leadership of Moses as you look at this passage of Scripture. As you think about the things that Moses was able to accomplish there for the children of Israel. And then you see the ultimate impact of what this legend was to these people. Now you think, think back before we read verse 8. Now don't look down yet. Don't read verse 8. Lon, I saw you. Don't look down yet. Think back about what Moses did to the people of Israel. You think back. We talked about one last week that comes to mind. Moses came down from the mountain. He had talked to God. God had told him all the commandments. The people of Israel had been a little upset or really worried. They honestly had had become disenchanted because for 40 days and for 40 nights, Moses had deserted them is what they thought in their mind. And so what did they do, Wayne? They got the gold together, didn't they? And what did they make? They made the golden calf. They said, okay, Moses is done. He's our only conduit to God, I guess. We give up. We don't think Moses is coming back. Aaron, let's make a golden calf. And of course, Aaron and his stupidity, and I will say stupidity, helped him fashion the golden calf. When Moses came down from the mountain and he heard the joyous singing and the raucous celebration there uh, that was going along in the camp of Israel, it burned Moses. So what did Moses do? Do you remember last week? That's right. He melted up the, the golden calf. And then he ground it up, poured it into the water, and made the people drink it. That's what Moses did to the people. Moses, time after time after time, would get up and plead and employ what we would call preach, hellfire and brimstone, right, Josh? Against those people saying, if you don't stop your evil ways, God is going to punish you. God is going to kill you. Today, people may not like that. What did the people of Israel think about Moses? Lon, let's look now at verse 8. See what Deuteronomy 34, 8 says. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now, we're going to get into Joshua chapter 1, where it's also a reflection on what they thought of Moses later on. They wept for 30 days. They wept for 30 days. I think they finally respected Moses. Sometimes I think it takes a death to finally respect somebody and to understand what they actually did. When you have that absence, the heart grows fonder, right? That's what they say. That's the phrase, right? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, death, of course, is the ultimate absence. You can't bring it back anymore. So the reflection there for 30 days upon Moses and all he did, I truly believe the nation of Israel realized what an important man Moses was and truly appreciated. Brother Jim.
Good point. Very excellent point. And I think you're right, Jim. For those of you who weren't able to hear Brother Henry, uh, Jim said, you know, you got to keep in mind, too, there was a changing, so to speak, of generations here. Uh, and there was. You're correct on that. Moses, of course, had, had uh, dealt with these murmuring and grumbling and griping and complaining people for 40 years of their wondering, right? But the people here approaching the promised land were a new generation. In fact, everyone besides Joshua and Caleb and their households had passed and perished. So those are the only ones carrying on. There was more of probably an endearing respect for what Moses had done for the people. Um, there, I, would, uh, I would hope they had learned their lesson. And I think as you get into Joshua, I think the nation of Israel had learned their lesson, really, truly. Uh, because you look at the success they had, their success was only brought about, we'll see, because of obedience. And so the only way to keep obedience is to keep that respect for God and to do the things God wanted. The old guard, the old generation had a problem with that. Uh, and time and time again, you see the nation of Israel turning their back on God, not doing the things that God would want, not following Moses' leadership there among the people. The new guard, perhaps, I think, had a change in mind, maybe a change in heart even, to, to look closer at who the man Moses was and to have a more full understanding about who God was. And I think that's what you see here with respect uh, to uh, Moses, his legacy, his leadership here. Of course, verse 9 in chapter 34 goes on to saying, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 10, I've got it underlined in my Bible. I don't know if you want to join me with that or not, but verse 10 of chapter 34 is the kind of of goal that I want in my life. I hope it is for you as a Christian as well. Verse 10, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. I'd like for that to be said about me. Now, obviously, I'm not sure it will ever be because obviously it says no, no prophet will ever be that way. I'm not a prophet either, so it really technically doesn't apply strictly to me. But can you imagine what it would be like to die and for that to be written on your tombstone? No man's like this, no woman is like this, has ever been, ever will be, who has known the Lord face to face. Now, you talk about A legend to live up to. (laughs) That's pretty rough. That's tough. That is a a hard road to hoe, so to speak, uh, in in a leader's life. Josh. Right. He didn't. Uh, and that's the thing. Uh, great comment, Josh. And, and of course, the, those who didn't hear it, Josh reminded us in the New Testament, of course, talking about John the Baptist, you know, Jesus himself said that no, there's no greater among those born of women except the one of the kingdom is always greater. 
And the, the reminder there is the fact that us as Christians have a, a unique blessing. We have a unique position. We have a, a unique ability to actually be blessed beyond what we deserve, blessed beyond by what we sometimes even understand uh, with respect to uh, those things around us. But what we see here uh, is, of course, jo- Joshua trying to live up, I believe, to the expectation sometimes of a legend, and that being Moses. Now, what's interesting and what's good to look at as you, as you go forward and you look at the, the passages in Joshua, uh, you see a couple of different points, and I'm not sure we'll get to them all today, but real quickly here, Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 through 9 here, the first part of, of Joshua chapter 1, the Lord actually commissions himself, Joshua, to assume that leadership. Now, of course, we just read in Deuteronomy 34 that, of course, Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Moses laid his hands on him. He gave him that authority, and he passed it down to him. He had been chosen in, in the forefront. He's read back in Numbers. Joshua uh, had been chosen by Moses to be his successor. Well, you see it come to fruition as you look in Joshua chapter 1. The Lord himself said in verse 1, he, he talks to Joshua, the son of Nun, and he says verses 2 through 9, look real quickly with me. Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and, and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river and the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn it to the right or or to the left, uh, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is according to what has been written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now talk about a commission to a man. I don't know about you. And of course, I've had different leadership functions in my life before. Um, I, I kind of think back to maybe even leaders of the church, so to speak, and elders I think parallel in my mind is almost Acts chapter 28 or so when Paul is is talking there to the elders of Ephesus and and he's really digging down in there and talking to them very distinctly and encouraging them, trying to build them up and let them know to be encouraged as leaders of his church, of the Lord's church that is. Here Joshua, assuming that role of leadership from Moses, taking over uh, from what I would say would be a legend of faith, Joshua is told specifically by God what his job is, what the purpose is going to be, and how they need to accomplish those things. Now, if I had to take over for a legend of faith, I can think no better way than to take over it at the direct commandment of God. Can you? Some people assume leadership just because of the situation, right? You think back and there's some battles in the Old Testament that, that deal with and talk about that the, the people are beat down. All of a sudden someone has to kind of 
rise up and be a leader. You see that in history as well. You know, when a commanding officer is killed, obviously there's someone who's got to kind of assume that control and assume that authority, assume that leadership of that regiment, so to speak, in battle. In this case, it was not assumed because of circumstance. It was not assumed because no one else would do it. The leadership that Joshua assumed was done because the Lord commissioned Joshua to stand up and to lead. And I love as you look at these verses, you see several different things. And I want to look at them real quickly, uh, dealing with the Lord's commission here. The purpose you see of the commission is stated in verse 2. And the purpose is very clearly there uh, that we are to assume the leadership, Joshua, so that you can take these people and assume the land Conquer the land, take the land that has been given to you by God there in verse 2. The land which I'm giving to them has been a common theme and a common thread. You look back in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We spoke about that last week. When God specifically started this commandment or started this blessing or this inheritance with Abraham. And he told Abraham, get up and leave. I'm going to take you to a land of which is going to be yours and your descendants. And so that common thread started in Genesis chapter 12, started weaving its way throughout all uh, the Pentateuch as you go through those different books of the Bible and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can read this common thread of God fulfilling this promise to, to Abraham. And later on, it's called a promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all of Israel. That that promise and that blessing of bringing about this land to them was to be fulfilled. The purpose of Joshua assuming and commanding and leading Israel was to make sure that this land was brought into their possession. And ultimately, if you want to think in the broader scope of things, his leadership was really to ensure that God's promise was fulfilled. God needed Joshua. So God commissioned Joshua. To make sure that his promise was fulfilled to his people according to his purpose. You also see the commission that we see here deals with the possession, the physical boundaries. I don't want to get tied up into all this. And and you can kind of uh, compare this with other passages. There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 11 uh, verses 22 through 25 if you want to look there. Looking at the the boundaries or the borders of this possession of of the land. And of course it gives you a broad idea there of course from the Mediterranean to to the Jordan River. The river Euphrates even on, as you think, and look in your, and we're going to use some maps later on as we start talking about some of these battles, so you'll see a bigger picture. You can probably flip to the back of your Bibles and see some maps if you really want to see the idea of the land that's going to be conquered by Joshua. But it's, it's a tremendous amount of land all the way from uh, going south almost to Egypt, all the way north uh, going toward the, the land of what we now call Turkey. As you go through there, there's a land of promise that God was going to give to the people. And here you see that the the possession and the physical boundaries here speak um, volumes about what God had had given them and had blessed them with. You also see the Lord's commission deals with a promise made to both Joshua and to the nation of Israel. And I love this promise in verses 5 and verses 9 here. Uh, It says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, again, a great allusion to what all God had done for the nation of Israel previously. Just as I've done with Moses, just as I've been with him, I will be with you. I will not fail you, 
or forsake you. Imagine God telling us that. (laughs) He does, by the way. Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who can be against us? Right? What a wonderful promise that is. To the nation of Israel, it really speaks volumes if you think about it. Think of all the fighting they were going to about to, to embark upon. We're going to get into those fights, those battles there. Uh, uh, as they would go into these, these foreign lands. They would go into these lands and confront those inhabitants of the land and say, Hey, we're taking your country from you. I imagine those people weren't too happy. What about you? God said, though, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. What a wonderful promise to know that when you're going into battle, God's there with you. Ultimately, we know as they go through here and we see signs such as the Ark of the Covenant was a wonderful reminder of the actual presence of God among them. You know, and I think that's wonderful to think about that God reminded them because of some of those those different, I would say treasures. I think that's kind of a bad word, but some of those reminders physically that God was with them. And as the Levites took that Ark of Covenant in front of the army, in front of them into battle, they were reminded that God was with them, leading them, protecting them, making sure they would be preserved. And God promised that to them. You'll see in the book of Joshua, as we go forward in the study, God makes good on his promise to them. He makes sure he's with them. If they obey him, which we're getting ready to get into that contingency, so to speak, God's with them. They don't have anything to worry about. They literally can be strong and courageous and not be afraid because the Lord goes with them each and every day. How does that relate and translate to our lives? Think practically for us for a moment. I already mentioned Romans chapter 8. If the Lord be with us, who can be against us? My good friend Yvonne, who led the prayer this morning, is a member of the church in Ivano Frankisk. They have been undergoing, especially as of late, some intense persecution. And I'm talking even physical persecution. Where members have been threatened. Even Yvonne himself was beaten up. They have struggled because they have a country that does not want them to go against the grain. They don't want them to worship in any other way beside Eastern Orthodox religion. We don't have to deal with that here, thankfully. We have the freedom right now at least, to to worship how we want to worship. We don't have to stress about that right now, do we? But you know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is one of those verses that really can be a cornerstone of a faith that's being struggled, that is undergoing persecution and problems in life. God is with us. If God is with us, who can be against us in the end? The book of Revelation is replete with the examples and the stories, the idea and concept that we have victory in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how we are today. It doesn't matter what we suffer through this moment in time. What matters is that God brings the victory to us. And if we hold true to him, like the nation of Israel, we will have the fulfillment of God's wonderful promise here that we see even in Joshua chapter 1. The position, of course, that Joshua is commissioned to fulfill in verse 6 is that Joshua is going to be the one. He is going to be the one. No others. You talk about a little bit of weight and heaviness on someone's shoulders and back. This is it. God in verse 6 says what? He says, be strong and courageous for you, 
This is a singular. You shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God says, hey, Joshua, it's nobody else. Son of none, it's you. It's you. Joshua was commissioned there to be the one and the only. He would be uh, the leader to bring about God's fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants. Look also, if you go on to see, verses 7 through 8, gives you the potential peril that God's commission to Joshua says. And here you see that any deviation from God's plan of attack is going to bring about destruction. Look there with me real quickly. I like this. I think we need to have this ingrained in our minds. It says right here, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Here's the part I think we really need to remember and think about. Do not turn from it to the right or or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Guess what? It doesn't matter what you want to do, Israel. Joshua, take, take heart. Take good measure of the fact that I'm truly leading this. It's my commandments that you are to carry out and to bring about to the nation of Israel. Israel, be forewarned. Do not turn to the right. Do not turn to the left. Do not deviate from my commands. Why? If you do, what will happen? You will suffer. You will suffer. I I promise you, I'll be with you each and every day. I promise I'll never fail you. I'll never forsake you. But, and you hate that three-letter word, don't we? (laughs) Or maybe the better word is if. A two-letter word. That's a a rough two-letter word for some people. I'll do this if you do that. And the if is pretty big there. Don't get in your mind what you want to do, what you like, what you feel is the best course of action. Guess what? What you want and what you think doesn't matter to a hill of beans to God because God's got his plan in focus. And Israel, you better follow it to the letter of the law. If you want to be successful, the potential peril for Israel is underscored here to Joshua. Let's them understand that if they falter and if they fail to be obedient, they will suffer the consequences. We're going to see that at Ai shortly on a couple chapters over. After the wonderful battle of Jericho, Achan gets it in his mind that he's going to go and take some of the loot and the bounty. And guess what happens when they go to the next battle? Israel squashed. They're not successful. And the whole reason is they fail to heed God's commandments and do exactly what he wants. Now, think about how this could apply to us today. I think back to the restoration plea, Wayne. I know we talked about the restoration movement some in our classes before. And, and you think about the, 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 the plea that we have and since the restoration movement came to America, so to speak, and it went to other parts of the world. I got, as I said, my Ukrainian friends here. And, and it permeated through Europe and, and Asia and those places as well. It's the same plea we argue today. What? Speak where the Bible speaks. Be silent where the Bible is silent. Why? Because we don't want to go to the left. We don't want to go to the right. We want to do the commandments of God. How wonderful is that of a lesson for us today? God promises he'll be with us, but there's a contingency. As a lawyer, those contingency clauses will get you if you don't look at them closely. 
If you do this, the contract's void. How does that speak to us today? Brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that we've got a road to follow. It's not a road that we dictate. It's not a commandment that we say we like this one, we, we don't like this one, so hey, we're going to do this one but not that one. That doesn't work with God. It doesn't work with God. You've got to do them all. You've got to follow God's path, not your path. If you don't follow that admonition and that warning, you will falter. Israel had the lesson here at the very beginning. They saw the potential peril here in the, in the beginning, the, the God's commission to Joshua. And they also see the prompting of God here. And I like this kind of gentle reminder. It's kind of like a little elbow here. God says here in verse 9, he says, have I not commanded you? Have I not commanded you? Hey, remember when? Hey, this isn't the first time, guys. And Josh, I think this kind of goes back to the idea of the new generation coming in. You know, if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 through 8, Moses first told the people there, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. The Lord goes with you each and every day. Back in Deuteronomy. And here in Joshua, he says it again. And that's what he says in verse 9. Hey, nudge, nudge, Israel. Nudge, nudge, Joshua. Remind them. I've told them this before. Remind them of where they came from and what they've done before so they don't make the same mistakes again. I get tired of reminding my children what they need to do. So much sometimes that I lose my cool and I say, Monica, you better handle this. I'm about to lose it. You know, you got a four-year-old, it happens, right? It happens. I think as a parent, you got to choose your battles. you got to think of those things. I can only imagine God's frustration sometimes with the children of Israel. They were his children. They were his chosen people. But here in verse 9, he gives them a gentle reminder, like I have to sometimes with Marley. Say, remember what daddy told you before? Israel here says, hey, Israel, remember, I told you this commandment before. Let's get it right this time. Appreciate y'all's kind of attention here. We're going to pick up next week talking about Joshua's commandment.